Welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast with your host, Brendan. Today, we have another legend of a guest. It is John Gibbons. He's a world-renowned osteopath. And on that podcast, we discussed, well, we got very detailed. So I'm not gonna go into the science behind it. And if you wanna go into our timestamps below, timestamps below in those chapters, you can navigate that content much more easily. Now, John is an amazing human being, especially what he's doing around the world globally and training people up in Bangkok on how to be osteopaths as well. Uh, if you enjoy this content, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Hit that bell notification. We'll wait for you. Smash that bell, actually. Um, if you want to know who are we, who is Fruiting Body Podcast? We're a medicinal lifestyle mushroom company on the island of Phuket. So we're doing products like lion's mane, reishi, cordyceps, all this stuff. It's all natural. We're selling it only in Thailand at the moment. So if you're looking for that product, you can visit us at www.fruiting-body.com and all of our products, when you go to purchase them, it redirects to Lazada. So you can get it there. Much easy, simple process as well. Uh, we're doing podcasts pretty much once a week. And on this one with John, we're filming this intro a little bit later. It's our new style that we're using. We want to bring more of a taste and touch of Thailand to you guys. So without further ado, let's get that podcast started. Okay. Um, all right. So to get started first, John, thanks a lot for joining us today. Anytime a guest that comes on that's traveling through the area, we greatly appreciate your time. I mean, we know you're here to kind of rest and relax, but you're also going up to Bangkok to work as well. So yeah. maybe we'll piggyback off that as well. Um, now let's talk about our connection first with Ty Emery. Yeah. There is an interesting connection there that I'm not even sure you're aware of. Did you know she's an, she was an electrician? <laughs> no. Now that's interesting because you also, that's your background and that's yeah. kind of the connection to the whole book. Um, it's up. Uh, sorry. I'm, I'm having a, what's it called? Brain dyslexia, the vital nerves. Yeah. And that's kind of how you did that framework <clears throat> of that book, but <clears throat> you're working with Ty and that's how we kind of connected there as well. And Ty was an electrician. So that's maybe something to bring up. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're getting past that. Um, moving forward, on this podcast, we really want to know your story and kind of what brought you to being an osteopath in this kind of world-renowned osteopath in that in those regards. Can you bring us back to the days in Kuwait and tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself to our audience, and how you got into it all? Yeah, so um, I actually started uh, probably when I was 16, which is quite a few years ago now, sadly. Um, so I joined the Army, so British Army, and I joined as a vehicle electrician. So my background was like electrics and mechanics, uh, but quite quickly I went into the physical training. So I did a course when I was 19, um, and then I was also involved in the adventure training side. So I would be teaching climbing, caving, mountaineering, canoeing, <clears throat> anything outdoors I would be involved in. So that naturally just led me to, to, to go into the PT almost like full-time. Um, but then when I was 22, um, I was then drafted, if you like, to go to Germany, Germany to Saudi, as in Iraq and Kuwait, uh, for the Gulf War. Mm. So I was there. Suddenly, I was, you know, I was one minute I was teaching rock climbing in Yorkshire, and next minute I'm in the desert in Saudi fixing vehicles um, in the Gulf War. So that was a, a little different transition. Was it quite quick? I mean, now how did that actually come together? And what do you mean by drafted? They, you're kind of already part of the army, and they yeah, say, well, hey, I'm already, yeah. So yeah. well, I was already in. Yeah. So I had no choice. It's not like you can say no. So. Um, uh, you know, when they say you have to go to these places, you had no choice. So, but I was um, involved with the army youth team teaching the adventure train inside. So that was brought short because they needed an electrician in Germany to then go to the Gulf. So it was like a like a sudden. You know, within a few days, I was 
from one place to another place to then suddenly abroad in in a war zone. Now this is like 1991, 92. Yeah. Um, after you, you were involved there and you came out of that, at which point did you actually get into becoming this again world-renowned osteopath? Yeah. Well, then then I was posted to um, England, back to England, um, and I was full-time physical trainer. And then I trained in um, subjects called like sports therapy, sports massage, uh, with a company called Premier. So then when I left the army five years later, I was then teaching for that company in Oxfordshire. And I was uh, a little bit bored just doing the, the treatment of patients in terms of like say soft tissue, because I wanted to learn how to manipulate. So like chiropractic, osteopathic manipulation of the spine. So I knew my, my focus was gonna go down that road. So then, because they, they studied in Oxford in terms of osteopathy, uh, I then spent five years training to be an osteopath there. And then from there, I was based at Oxford University uh, Sports Complex. Um, and then I was involved in looking after all the university students and all the staff. Then I started teaching for Oxford. So I would teach the, uh, the MSc in sports medicine. And I'd also teach for medical students. And I'm back teaching medical students now at, at Oxford. And I, and I was looking after them for about 18 years or so. Um, and I'd looked after the boat race team. But then during that time, I was doing a lot of teaching. Lots of people would travel from all over the world to run, I'd run courses. Um, and then I slowly will put together like a, like, a, like a technique known as the Body Master Method. And then I started to write my first book in 2010, which was published in 2011. And then since then, I've done, uh, I'm on my ninth book now. Are you kind of doing one every other year at this yeah, point? Yeah, well, sometimes it, it takes a bit longer to write. Like my pelvis book is about 100,000 words. So it takes about, took me about two years just over to write that one. The same with the shoulder. That was about 105,000 words. So it took a long time. Whereas my glutes one was probably maybe one year because it's 60,000 words. These, these books now, I was, again, I was listening to the Bob and Brad podcast. So I think if you really want to dig a bit deeper and get more technical, I think that's, that's a great podcast out there. They got a huge following. Um, on that side, you had a, a phrase you're saying to maximize your glute gluteus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Could you elaborate on that a bit more? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, when I, my first book at, at the end of the first book, which is called muscle energy techniques, uh, which is basically like, um, like a form of contracting a muscle to allow it to relax to then the therapist would then lengthen. So it's like normalizing muscle length. Um, at the end of it, I wrote a section on, on weakness of muscles. And in particular, I talked about the gluteus maximus and the gluteus medius. And then my publisher says, well, why don't you write a book just on the glutes? So I wrote an article first and I called it Put in Maximus Back into Your Gluteus. Okay, yes, this. And, um, and it went down really well. So people liked the article. You know, I'd, I had hundreds of comments saying, you know, or oh, could you write a lot more about the glutes, um, et cetera, et cetera. So then, and there's another funny story because I had a place in Turkey and I was, write, I was starting to write this book. And my son said, Dad, you know, I know you've written one book. What are you writing about now? And I said, well, I'm writing about... And I ha it was hard to, to talk to an 11-year-old boy about, um, like, the gluteus maximus and its function and the anatomy. So I said, oh, I'm just writing about your bum, the bum muscles. He's like, Dad, that is so weird. <laughs> I'm going to tell all my friends you're just a weirdo. He said, what is there to say... The bum muscles are just big and squidgy. And then he said, how many words have I written about the bum? And I said, well, I've done 11,400 and something. And he's like, you've written 11,500 words just on the bum. I go, well, yeah. And a year later, I'd written, say, 65,000 words. And he, my son could not believe I could write so much about one small area. But honestly, you know, and I called it the vital glutes because the, the, the glutes is so key 
to stability of the pelvis, the hip, the knee, the ankle, and the foot. So if you have a problem with the knee, one of the main focus could be that you would look at the activation, the control of the gluteus. Yeah, I had a, a major issue with my left knee, and it would happen every couple of years where just out of nowhere, I couldn't even do a body squat. Yeah. And uh, there was a really good physiotherapist. It's, I've seen so many people on this island for, for to try to treat this, and there's one in Chalong, kind of off Tiger Road. I, I can't recall the name. Um, but basically he, he ended up finding out like I, from the squats I was do, doing, I was using my right quad more than the left. Yeah. And then there was just atrophy. The, the muscle wasn't even working. And he basically, I was just doing physio and just would go into the gym and build this muscle up and that went away immediately. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's peel it back a bit. We're going to explain like what is an os uh, osteopath and how does that maybe differentiate from a chiropractor? And you can give us your explanation mm -hmm. on that. Um, before that, uh, finally, I remember, we're going to do a quick shout out to our sponsor. Our sponsor is Five Star Marine. Uh, it's a good friend of mine, Sean Stenning. He's just helping with the production of this podcast um, with that overhead. Five Star Marine, they are a VIP speedboat tour on the island of the Phuket. I think they're one of the best. I mean, not just saying that because they're helping sponsor, but there's a lot of speedboat companies when you're going to go around like Thailand and you want to go to Krabi and PP or maybe Pang Na. They kind of put you on these cookie cutter type of um you know let's go here just because maybe it's cheaper on gas these ones they're private you can choose where you want to go the captain will decide obviously based on that day so go check them out it's uh five star marine phuket on instagram and thanks a big shout out to them um coming back to the podcast on your definition of an osteopath and maybe how does that differentiate from a chiropractor well it depends where you train like um if you train in the u.s like an osteopath is known as like an osteopathic physician. So they would have like a medical doctor status. So for me, I couldn't be an osteopath in the US because I haven't, I've done a medical degree, but not like a doctor medical degree. So it's, it's very different way you train. But in the UK, you know, chiropractic and osteopathy, they follow a similar line in some respects, but then they deviate a lot in others. Like a chiropractor, because uh, I train lots of them and I know lots of them, so I have uh, many friends. So... The main philosophy will be that typically, if you think, look at the spinal column and say the pelvis, then everything typically will relate to the nervous system. So if you have like a knee pain, then more than likely my friend might not directly look at the knee in itself. He might consider or she might consider there's a problem with the, the neural pathway to that knee. So they might look at, say, the femoral nerve, which has come from, say, L234. So they might look at your lower back. So they might do an adjustment mm -hmm. of the lower back to affect the nerve or the position of the vertebra. So let's say they, they use a word like a luxation. So if you have a vertebra, that's, well, luxation is, a, is an awkward word sometimes because it naturally means a dislocation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you've got like a, a fully luxated shoulder, it's dislocated. Um, <clears throat> so if there's a, a rotation within the vertebra, then the neural pathway will be affected. So they will do an adjustment to ah, the vertebra okay. to affect the pathway of that nerve to that area. So if you've got, say, pain in the calf, they might not say, oh, it's a calf problem. They might look at, say, the S1 nerve, which is between, say, L5 and S1. That's, well, it's not directly there. There's, um, because the L5 nerve comes out, <coughs> and then the S1 nerve um, is like traverses. So that disc, per se, will affect the L5 nerve coming out and the S1 nerve coming down. So it affects both of them, potentially. So they would look at that area if you have, say, like, weakness in the foot. Yeah, or... But also the... The treatment tends to be a bit shorter. 
some treatments are purely manipulative biased. Not always, okay, don't get me wrong, you know, some chiropractors do some soft tissue work, but the majority yeah, will mainly perform um, like an adjustment technique for the spine. So the treatments tend to be, you know, within 5 to 10 to 15 minutes, maybe a bit longer depending on who you see. Whereas an osteopath can do similar techniques. So if you watched an osteopath manipulate a neck, mm -hmm. then you wouldn't know if it was a an osteopathic manipulation or a chiropractic manipulation or even a physiotherapy. So the technique are very similar, uh, but the osteopath is able, if you like, to do a bit more soft tissue work. They might spend a bit more on um, examination of, of areas like hip assessments, shoulder assessments. The chiropractor can do the same, uh, but they might not spend so long doing that side of things because they naturally think a problem in the shoulder, they might test a weakness. So if you lift the arm and is weak, they're not going to say it's a problem with the shoulder in itself. They will think it might be a C5 problem in your neck that's innovating the motion of the shoulder. Okay, so they don't look at the shoulder as such. They might look at the neck. Whereas the osteopath might say, well, we will look at the shoulder as well to make sure that biomechanically it's moving. And then we can also look at the neck and we can also do an adjustment. So treatment tends to be 45 minutes for the first one and 30 minutes to follow on. Mm. So the osteopath will say do 10 to 20 a day where some chiropractors can maybe do 30 to 50 patients a day. Is, what's the relationship like between osteopath, uh, people that are like an osteopath and someone that's a chiropractor? In this industry, are you guys getting along? Is there controversy? Do you have, you know, different schools of thought? Uh, yes, I guess um, a lot of people will have um, variations of thought processes, if you like. Um, you know, I, because the thing is with me, because I've probably taught... 100,000 therapists over, say, 20 years, and I've probably treated 100,000 patients, um, then I do like to think that I can have a discussion with, with lots of other... No, some would call them physical therapists. Uh, you have to be careful with that word in UK because it relates to physiotherapists. Mm. Um, whereas in US, um, you know, they call themselves like athletic trainers or physical therapists, etc. Um, but typically, a lot of the professionals, like the chiropractors and the physios, and the osteopath all tend to work together. You might find in a certain clinic, there will be, you know, let's say it's an osteopathic clinic, but then they'll also utilize the skills set, if you like, of, of a chiropractor mm -hmm. and the physio and the sports therapist and the sports massage and Pilates. So they all tend to work together. Naturally, there are some where the chiropractors naturally work together. The physiotherapy, physiotherapy is different because within the UK, it's like uh, controlled under like the NHS. You can have private physios, a lot of them, um, because they tend, they're taught within the National Health Service, so they tend to work in hospitals. Um, so they work differently. Doctors tend to refer mainly to them because it's part of the NHS and patients don't have to pay. Whereas, and it, but then it's like three to six months. Whereas with osteopaths and chiropractors, they mainly are private so mm -hmm. then you'd have to pay money to then go and see these so wouldn't that kind of be uh an issue like working with the government on that side where you kind of get this dinosaur effect where there's certain material that this is how we've done it since the 80s the 70s yeah. that's not changing but on the private side you have that creativity and flexibility yeah yeah exactly yeah because you know at the end of it it probably sadly everything boils down to money yeah you know a physiotherapist working in nhs might not be appreciated for what they do in terms of, say, the money side. And they might not like the process behind the treatment side because a lot of them um, might get recommended to prescribe more exercise-based 
mm. rather than saying, oh, I'm going to spend 30 minutes treating your back with some soft tissue techniques and some massage and some manipulation, they might not be advised to do that. They might say, with our patients in this clinic, yeah, it is more exercise biased. So treatments tend to be a bit less, 20, 30 minutes. Um, and then there's a list of exercises that they would prescribe to do that. So there might not be as much, depending on where they are, much hands-on. Whereas osteopath and chiropractors are almost always hands-on. So they will physically contact you and look at you and assess you and move you and pull you and push you. Well, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you got to follow the money. And where that's going, is it going to the surgeon? Is it going to people that are doing physiotherapy, the, uh, the osteopath or the chiropractor? Can you give a specific example of where maybe you've dealt with a patient, a patient that have got, has gone through surgery when they probably shouldn't have? Um. <laughs> I'm sure this yeah. comes up all the time. It's maybe the, uh, I had a guy on the pod, uh, sorry, he's one of our producers and he, uh, he had an issue with his knee and yeah. always in Thailand, when you go to the hospital, it's immediate surgery. And then you go see a physiotherapist or, you know, a chiropractor, someone is going to look at it a bit deeper and yeah. they kind of give you the idea, well, you can at least try to do this type of, you know, exercises and you might not need the surgery. Have you dealt with that in your career? Well, I've probably dealt with it uh, many times that's the thing sometimes is it's like many years ago there's a, there's a famous lady called Dr. Ida Rolf and she simply stated where the pain is the problem is not mm. the negativity in some respects is that you know the surgeons like the orthopedic surgeons or the neurosurgeons it doesn't matter what type of surgeon in some ways you know if you see a like an orthopedic surgeon for knee pathology then naturally the surgeon is probably going to recommend some form of arthroscopic surgery to maybe remove part of the meniscus yeah, or repair this or do that. Um, whereas you might be better to maybe, like say, look at the glutes because if you were to look at the patient and when they bend, they get, say, medial knee pain. Most of the, say, the pain in the knee, yes, it could be an arthritic change to the knee, but by trying to make the glute more, more stable, if you like, and more uh, stronger, then that then reduces the pressure to that knee. But also you can maybe look at the position of the foot as well. So podiatrists, they specialize in the bi biomechanics of the foot. So they put, might put in like an ophosi in the shoe, like an orthotic. And then by controlling the position of the foot, will control the position of the knee. So then that change of position can also reduce the load to the knee. So you might find you don't really need surgical intervention. Yeah, I on that, the last podcast I was listening to, again, on Bob and Brad, you were saying usually if the, the big toe doesn't uh, go 45 degrees, yeah. you're, you're able to uh, diagnose or kind of get an idea of, of the problem. Can you jump specifically on like that case so people can understand a bit more? Well, I've seen lots of people with, let's say, for instance, they present with back pain. Four out of five patients will have back pain. But then in terms of, you know, you've got to ask yourself a question, is it the symptom or is it the cause? Most of the time, for me, it's never really the causative factor. You know, yes, someone says, oh, John, I've got an L5-S1 disc pathology. And I go, well, well, that's okay, because a lot of people do. Um, whereas the pelvis and the hip and the lumbar work as a triangle. So you've got A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have a problem with the hip, A, naturally connects to the pelvis, B, which is influenced by the lumbar, C. So you have this triangular effect. But before you even get to the pelvis, I would always look at the knee and I'd always look at the ankle and the foot. So 
it only takes me 30 seconds just to quickly assess motion of a great toe. So if you cannot extend the great toe, you only need really extension of the great toe, not really flexion. Because when you are walking, as you go into that heel lift to toe off, the great toe naturally mm-hmm. extends. Okay, And if it is restricted in motion, you know, you could have like a female might have what we call like, like, a, like a bunion hallux valgus where you have this deviation. Men in a certain age bracket might have gout. Okay, which affects for seventy five percent affects that first MTP joint, um, and then you can have something called hallux rigidus. It's like where it's just basically a rigid great toe, and then the change of position now the foot deviates from that, so that then affects the whole kinetic chain. Also, the ankle you only need from neutral about ten degrees of door to lift up to walk normally, and if a foot ankle is not allowed to dorsiflex from the ankle or foot, mm-hmm. then the 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 biomechanics on the foot changes the is a joint here called the subtalar joint and the subtalar joint will more likely flatten like pronate which flattens the foot which then takes the shin bone the tibia in which then changes the knee which then changes the hip so you could have knee pain because of ankle foot you could have pelvic pain because of the ankle and foot but let's say all that's okay then but you still have back pain for me the majority of back pain is caused by a problem with the hip and i see it a lot more often than i do not um, especially in women. Women tend to have more hip pathology, if you like, um, that's undiagnosed. Why, um, why is that? Well, because, because they present with back pain. So they go and see lots of people, you know, I can tell you story after story, I've written hundreds of case studies where, and they've had surgery, yeah, they've had surgery for the lower back because there's a, a disc, okay, that's, that they think is giving them the symptoms. But when they do surgery, like a microdiscectomy, it makes no difference and they still have pain because nobody looked at the hips. So when someone looks at the hips, like me, because they don't think the hip is related to the back pain or SI pain. So if you've got SI pain, when I was teaching in, um, in Taiwan, a lot of the doctors there will do like a, like a, a prolotherapy, like sclerosing, they, they inject fluid to try to stabilize the SI ligaments. Mm. But they don't look at anything else. Pain in the SI, let's inject it. Uh, whereas I think in 97, Fortin did a study where if you've got SI pain, it gives you pain 10 centimeters by 3 centimeters. But most SI pain is not influenced by the SI joint. It's, it's, you perceive SI pain, but it's coming from another source. Lumbar spine refers, mm-hmm. yeah, but more often than not, it's dysfunction within the hip joint. When I say hip, the ball in the socket, there's, um, there's a piece of fibrocartilage like called the acetabular labrum. And the labrum, like the meniscus in the knee, if that ball catches it and it tears, then you've got a labral tear. And that labral tear will never really repair itself. And then every now and again, it, it will catch. And then when you have a problem with the hip, the muscle that connects over it is called the hip flexor, like the psoas. Mm-hmm. And then the psoas is Im- influenced by the capsule and the pathology within. And then the psoas and the glute are opposite. So when you have a problem with A, you've got a problem with B. So the glutes don't work as well as they should. So now the hamstrings work harder or the lower back works harder. So now you've got back pain, or you've got hamstring tears, mm. okay? Or you've got buttock pain, central buttock pain, because piriformis is working too hard. And people say, oh, it's a piriformis syndrome. It's not. It's a problem with your hip that's giving you these extra symptoms. Mm. So when you have an injection, or you have um, surgery for your back or for or this, so you have 50 sessions of treatment on your hamstring, but it makes no difference because the problem's in the hip. So I always, always, and, and a simple test would be, you know, my, one of my friends, she emailed me even yesterday. She said, oh, my friend's got an unstable pelvis. Um, 
I mentioned that before, but she can't basically cross her leg over. She can't do that. And I'm saying that is such a, a basic test to do. And if you can that cross the, the leg. That's the hip, hip flexor there? No, no, it's nothing point? to do with hip flexor. Okay. The hip flexor would naturally, so you've got 10 muscles at hip flex. Mm. Okay. Psoas is the main one. Psoas and iliacus. But for that movement, so this is called the tailor's position. Sartorius is part of that muscle, which will do it. But it's not really, it's a mobility test. So for you to do this, they call it a Faber's because it's a flexion with an abduction, with an external rotation, Faber, F-A-B-E-R. So by putting yourself into this position here, if you can do that on both legs equally and it doesn't cause any restriction, you can almost, not always, but most of it, it's like 8 out of 10, you can rule out hip pathology. But wouldn't you see that in, I've, I, in males probably more than females no. having this issue? I, no. I know for me personally, I could never sit cross-legged. Okay, like just sit down. That's both the... legs, don't it? Sorry, it's both legs. Bo what do you mean? Uh, so you can't. So the right oh, leg is I, equal. Uh, it's actually the... worse on my my right hip. But then over, I've been doing a lot of hit classes over at Bangtao okay. Muay Thai, and they really focus on stretching before and after. After yeah. three months, like yeah. I, I can actually put my arms behind my back. Mm -hmm. I can bring the hip. I can cross my legs. But yeah, probably prior to that, mm. uh, I think it's from sitting down and working all day. Yeah. my hip flexors are just exactly. super tight. Yeah. Yeah. So. If it's just like a, a soft tissue issue, so like the ligaments and the muscles and the tendons, then you will see an improvement with, say, like yoga-based exercise, mobility, stretching, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But when, when there's a mechanical blockage, so when you're doing this, you think, oh, it feels tight, but I could almost say, well, I can improve it. I can push it, and I can improve that movement. Do you know what I mean? But when someone tries to do that and they can't even cross the leg over, then there's a mobility issue within the hip. So, and then if you do that, where you bring the leg in, okay, so that's like the opposite of Faber's. It's called a fair, so it's flexion with adduction and internal rotation here, and you get pain nipping in the groin, then that could well be that you were catching. It's like an impingement syndrome. Mm. So that's almost like two simple tests. So that's one test, and that's that test. And you can almost do that with a patient just sitting talking to you. And if they, and if they restrict in to do that, I had um, a lady coming in um, recently, and her... Husband's a doctor, and he, and he said, oh, my wife has got myofascial pain syndrome because she's got pain around both hips. And I'm sent to her, she was 55, can you cross the legs over? No, I can't. Either leg. And I'm saying, this is within five minutes. I'm saying, I probably don't want to say this, but more than likely, you have got degenerative changes to both of your hip joints. And he's like, I'm a doctor, and she's got myofascial pain syndrome. I'm saying, I don't think she has. I think she, so now we go onto the couch and I assess her hips and there's hardly any movement. There's what we call a hard end range. Mm. So I can't physically push through that. And when I go into internal rotation, there's like a, uh, a catch in. There's a hardly, we should have internal rotation of 35 degrees going like this way. Mm. Okay, and then 45 degrees going that way. And if you've got a hard end feel, then anyway, she had an x-ray, both hips, severe degenerative changes, she emailed me last week saying, I've just had oh, both just hips. Push the mic up a bit and then down. and then Okay, there you go. Yeah. Better. And, yeah. She, ju and she just had uh, both hips replaced. So she obviously thanked me for that. So a lot of people will see me because they've seen, say, 50 other therapists. And they all have, a, have their own ideas. You know, if you see 10 therapists for, for your hip uh, or back pain, they'll all have maybe 8 to 10 different ideas about why. And they'll treat you accordingly. But not many of them will directly look at the, the hip joint, which is probably the cause of your back 
or knee pain. When you're assessing them, like nine times out of 10, is it hereditary? Is it lifestyle? Like, for example, I could imagine someone, let's say, working at a shopping mall selling shoes where they're on their feet all day. There's going to be typically a problem that you're going to see reoccurring over time. So when you're assessing uh, your clients that are coming in, speaking on that point, is it hereditary? Is it lifestyle? Are these questions of, you know, what's going on in, the, in their maybe family history or what they're doing on their day to day? Are you going through this stuff with them? Yeah, um, it depends. Like several of my last 20 patients, probably 19 of them have been female and they all present in a similar way. As in, it's never, they never say they've got a hip problem. It's always like back, knee, hamstring, groin. Yeah, that sort of area, even a few other areas like foot pain, even shoulder pain. And, um, but I still will always assess the hip, but it tends to be, main, for me, mainly women uh, and when I say that, like when you think about the, the differences between, say, the, the men and, and the man and woman, then in terms of like the hip. So, and if you look at the position of the knee, because the woman has a curvature and the men will be pretty straight, then that hip is naturally wider compared to the male, which means the knee is naturally going to deviate in more. Medically, the knee is called genu, so we call it genu valgus, which is simply knock knees. Mm-hmm. So, and then the hip is called coxa. So if you have what we call coxavarus, you have genu valgus. So you basically have this, and it's called the Q angle, the quadricep angle. So, and if a woman is a bit more mobile, so on the verge of being hypermobile, where the elbows extend, you can bring the thumb back, yeah, and the knees hyperextend, then they have extra mobility, which for a hip, hips don't like it. When you're younger and you're doing gymnastics, you are way more flexible. When you go to yoga or Pilates, the majority is women that would do more flexibility training. Mm-hmm. Not so much men. You go to a gym, most men are doing the pushing and the pulling. Yeah, same as women. It's, quite, it's not very dynamic. It's yeah. quite static. And that's, yeah. it's not even that. A lot of the times I have that thought, like, for example, you're doing shoulder press. It's not even natural movement. No. Uh, on some of that. And I'm, I'm assuming I had shoulder pain from doing, I know for sure, the wrong shoulder uh, exercises. And again, everything is very static in the gym. But most, most of the time, it's, it's technique orientated. Mm-hmm. So many people have shoulder pathology because of the technique they do. And if you don't ask about that, you know, they go back to the gym, they'll still perform the movement that's causing them the symptom in the first place. And, that, you know, and you're only there then just to treat what they present with as in a symptom. But in terms of like this hip, um, you can tear the labrum. You know, if, you've, if you get the foot gets stuck um, because it's a bit of mud and then you just over-rotate, um, then the hip, you can just tear it because w- more women have, a, have more mobility they will be more prone mm-hmm. to having this labral impingement sy- symptoms within the hip joint compared to the mm-hmm. men. I've seen, and I've seen thousands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there any exercise that in the gym for males that are probably, it, it's very standard for a male exercise routine. Maybe Monday you do chest, maybe it's a mix, yeah. whatever. Is there anything that people are probably doing, uh, the majority of them are doing for their exercise that they should not be doing in the gym? Um, maybe one example to lead with that is I've read a lot about the, the pull down bar and going behind the neck and a lot of people online will be like, do never do that. This is, uh, you could get a shoulder impingement. Um, so what, do you know why? No. I mean, could you elaborate on that? So, um, (laughs) anatomy wise, when you think about the, the motion of a shoulder, if that's the top of a shoulder, medically it's called the acromion. And then this is the humerus bone Mm -hmm. there. So you got this space in between. And that space, if you measure it, is roughly between 8 and 12 millimeters. So it's called the subacromial space. 
So the space is naturally quite, you know, it's like a finger width, if you like, underneath that shoulder here. But naturally, within that area, there are mainly 10, like part of a rotator cuff. And the main one is called the supraspinatus. And the supraspinatus oh, is, like, is the main, well, it initiates the abduction, but it's active throughout full abduction. But around 60 to about 110 degrees, there's a, a chance of it being caught whether you've got a problem or not. So for the body to try to reduce impingement, it will want to turn the arm out because it, the humeral head is rotating away, so mm. it increases the space. So it reduces the chance of impingement. And also, as you are lifting, you know, it's quite a complex movement that. We take it for granted, but we can just do that. Mm. Okay, but it's like five areas to allow that. So you've got this little joint called the AC, you've got the SC, you've got the shoulder joint called the glenohumeral, and you've got the scapula, that rotates, and it works on a, what we call a two-to-one ratio with the humerus. Plus also you've got the thoracic spine, because if you flex in the spine, then you can't lift your arm up. Mm. Okay, so the thoracic spine is also part of it. So there's five things to consider. So when you're doing a shoulder press, um, or a lat pull-down, shoulder press behind, and you're doing this, yeah. or a lat pull-down behind, you start with the arm in external rotation, which is fine, but as you come down through that natural movement of, say, 90 degrees, the humerus is going to rotate internally. And not only that, you bring the head forward and the shoulder comes back. So you're almost causing impingement as you bring the bar behind the neck. Mm -hmm. The same when you start with a shoulder press behind you, you're almost causing impingement as you go through that phase there. And you've loaded it. And that little tendon of the supraspinatus, most pathology in shoulders, 95%, if not more, okay? You know, if you said to someone, you know, uh, oh, or someone said to you, well, I've got a problem with my shoulder, and you just said supraspinatus, 95%, you'll probably be correct. Mm. But it's a difficult one to treat, and you don't really want to treat the tendon. You want to maybe treat the cause of it, which might be the shoulder press in the gym or the lat pull-down. If, if you're in the gym and you see people doing this mo movement, yeah. will, will you go up to them and be like, don't do that ever again? It's, that's an interesting concept, because I've, I've done that a few times. Um, if people like at Oxford University, the gym there, they probably know me and they naturally will adhere to my advice I give you, especially if they come off a machine rubbing their shoulder. But let's say, for instance, I go to the, the gym in Phuket um, and I don't know that person and that person is, because I'm a bit older now, you know, I don't probably train as much as I used to. In fact, I broke my hand about uh, a month ago riding my motorbike. Shit. So I wanted to ride and I'm riding in Chiang Mai next week. Uh, five days in the jungle. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I, I, I went to the gym first day, but I can't, well, it's better now, but I couldn't physically grip anything. So I've been running most days, uh, but I can't physically do much movements here, So uh, which is a shame. Um, so that person, let's say they, they're 25 years old and they, are, they, they have a defined shape. They will naturally look at me and if I've got a, an equal shape to them, they'll probably might take some advice. But because, let's say, I'm just in the gym and they don't know me, I think men from an egotistic perspective would probably not adhere to what you would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and let's, I mean, you got some, you got your badge on here. They're, yeah. they're, you're able to explain who you are a little yeah. bit and give some background. Um, let's jump into why you're here in Thailand and explain a little bit about your upcoming courses in Bangkok and what that all involves. Well, I'm here because I'm, I'm away for two months. So it's not just Thailand. So, um... Um, so 
I've done 60,000 words on my spinal book. So I'm in the process of fine-tuning my new book, if you like, which, um, which I, in fact, it was funny because I was in Vietnam for my, my nerve book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was fine-tuning that one on the plane, which I wrote about in, in the book, so that's quite nice. And, um, but my books all tell like a story. Sometimes my editor doesn't like it because he said like it's a medical book, people are interested in it. But I said, well, you say that, but because I've done so many now, and I do believe that when people read my books, it's like listening to me in class. And uh, you know, if they close their eyes or if they just you know, started reading, they'd, they'd look up and go, no, it looks like it's almost like word for word. Um, so that's part of what I'm doing here. But just before I came over, there was a lady from Bangkok who was a, who's a I think she's a physiotherapist, but she literally, from, she's not actually from Bangkok, she's like 600 kilometer north. So she flew to Bangkok with her husband, flew to Switzerland, Switzerland to London, London to where I'm doing training, but she came for one day. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine the cost. Two people flying over to do a one-day course with me. You know, she's going to spend a lot of money just for that. So, uh, so I'm saying to her, well, when I'm in Thailand, in Phuket, if you want me to run a course for you and your colleagues, I can do that. And she said, no way I can do. I said, yes. So I'm going to be teaching on, on week Saturday um, in a hotel in Bangkok for this lady, um, she has a long name, it's hard for me to say the name, and, uh, and her colleagues. So it's going to be probably 15 students, and I'm teaching them uh, spinal manipulation techniques. It's almost like chiropractic adjustment, but already um, physiotherapy trained. Yeah, so it's, it'll be like a, a mobilizing of the spine and, uh, uh, and manipulation. Um, so that's what I'm doing for one day. And then in three weeks, I then fly to Sydney, and I'm doing two days uh, teaching a shoulder course and a hip course, but I'm also meeting my sister. And then I go to New Zealand and I do a guest talk in uh, one of the universities in, in New Zealand. So with my sister, I mean my auntie. So it's like a, a two-month travel. You're based in the UK. And based in Oxford, you, yeah. you're, you're traveling around the world and, and having these classes. Is this constant all year or do you have a certain downtime where you kind of just rel- uh, get some R&R back at home? Well, I don't tend to work too much in January. So I tend to, most of the time, I'd be in Mexico diving in some caves oh, okay. uh, for a few weeks. Um, I probably haven't done, I have done a month stint in Thailand a few years ago, but um, I do teach a lot. Like I was in Abu Dhabi in November, so I did um, five, four days teaching in the hospital there, and then I went back, I was in Phuket and I did my rescue diver course here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I teach and I do some R&R, okay? So like I've been Dubai four times this year. Uh, I'm going to be in uh, Portugal next year and then teaching and Taiwan in fact, this year, it's mm. this year now, we're in 2023, I can never remember. Uh, then I'm in Ireland, uh, then I'm in India, uh, and I'll probably be in Dubai and Egypt uh, about three times. So, yeah, no loads, and maybe China if it opens up. Traveling the, the world completely. Have, have you always had that travel bug? Have you always kind of been traveling the world, maybe not just for work? Uh, well, I was army for many years, so like 12 years, so yeah. I naturally travel lots of places then. But I probably have done more since being like a, like a popular osteopath lecturer, I would say. The thing is with that, because I've got obviously a YouTube channel, um, I've got 400 and some videos on there. You know, like people in China, they've never met me. And I said, John, we've, we watch you with videos. Um, and then we've read you a books because they're in China. You know, I think they're in five languages, my books, Korean and Spanish and Chinese, etc. So they naturally read uh, and watch. And they go, oh, can you come and teach a course for us? And then we work on a payment, whatever it is. And then uh, and before I know it, I'm, I'm in, in Guangzhou and you know, teaching or 
Yeah, I used to live outside of. uh, I used to live in Taiwan. I lived in Shinju, which is about an hour south of Taipei. I've taught. Yeah, I've taught amazing country. I've been in August. I want to actually. I've been here seven years. I was in Shenzhen for six, seven. Um, I lived in Taiwan for one, but actually, I want to move back to Taiwan and just do like three to four months again. Yeah, I love this country. is amazing, especially for like if you're like you know an outdoor junkie like myself. It's the mountains. It's spectacular. when you're traveling around and you're going to be heading up to Chiang Rai, let's talk about your passion for motorbiking and motocross. Uh, you've had this, I'm assuming, like we discussed since you're a kid. Talk about that trip we discussed on the phone, what you're going to be doing up in Chiang Rai. Um, yeah, so I've only been actually doing uh, off-road motorbiking only for a year and a half. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I so, thought for some reason you, this is something you've carried since you are a child. No, so... Um, I've had motorbikes for a while, and I've got quite a few motorbikes now. I think I've got six KTMs and a few others. And um, so, yeah, so I started off-roading on a, like a 350 EXC, a KTM, which is a lovely bike, uh, September. But I've done, I think I've done about 11,500 miles in a year and a bit, uh, just off-road um, in all the trails uh, and all that stuff. So my friend Richard, he's going to come over on the 29th. Ninth, uh, and I'll meet him in Chiang Mai, so we'll go there. And then there's a German leader called uh, uh, Hermann, so he's part of a uh, motorbiking. So we're going to be on a KTM 250s. So it's like a loop we do. I think it's about 700 kilometers. Yeah, you're so you're kind of doing the Mai Hung Song loop in Chiang Mai, and then yeah, but all off five days. So. Y- as much off-road as we can. Yeah, because these bikes, you can't really have them on the, the pavement. I mean, it's terrible for the tires, no? Well, not really. Um, I thought it kind of like... Well, right. no. Um, most of the time, obviously, like in you know Portugal or UK, wherever we ride, uh, we, you naturally have to spend time on it. No, they're fine on the road. And, like, and, and, and they are quite quick. You know, my bike can do 80, 90 miles an hour quite easily, uh, whether it's on-road or off-road. So they are pretty powerful. They can wheelie probably in every gear. Um, so they are pretty powerful bikes. I'm not sure what these new bikes will be like. In well, at least you're lucky because it was raining here. Like it was raining here nonstop since June. Yeah, it recently just stopped. You can tell in Thailand what happens is because I'm a golfer, the winds will just change. Yeah, and then that's when you know the rainy season's done. But um, I've done some hiking out and around here, and especially if you're going to be doing this type of uh, off-road stuff up in Met Chiang Mai, if it's raining. Yeah. It, Almost impossible. It'd just be a nightmare out there. All right, well, I, qu- yeah. I quite like her. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, to a point. As long as it's not too, because we like, yeah. we almost like wait for the winter months in UK. It gets very leachy here. So when you really get off road, like because of the mud, the yeah. leeches come out, and really? they're not big, oh. thick leeches that you can take off. They're the ones that will get like under a nail. These little oh, oh. suckers. Yeah, they have. There's a really nice park north of Bangkok <laughs> called uh, Kau, What is it? Khao Yai. I think Khao Yai yeah. National Park. And you'll watch people go hiking into this park and they, it looks like they're wearing like COVID gear because you can't go in there. The, the leeches fall from the trees on you and they're so well, intentionally, small. intentionally, intentionally, they can feel your vibrations. So they, they want to come and suck your blood. Wow. And they're so small. I've seen them. They get into eyes and under. It's like, Oh my God. So oh. there's a lot of that, but if there's no rain, it's, it's fine. And I tell people that are, Hey, I want to go to a waterfall that it's raining. You, you don't want to go in that water. All right. Just packed with leeches because oh, they're coming down through the mud. Um, yeah. th- so you have this class coming up, up in Bangkok. You recently went to Krabi. Does Thailand, is there a special connection to it here? You said you stayed a month. Is it somewhere you'll continuously come back to? 
Yeah, no, I have a friend, uh, Clay, um, who's like a, who's my diver, uh, also my friend, ex-military as well, like me. And, uh, and I think we've had a, a good bond. Uh, and there's a few people I've met here. So um, potentially I might be looking at, say, buying like an apartment uh, to spend longer time. Where in Phuket? Michael, or? you know Michael. Yep. Uh, it's, uh, he's doing, um, what's the name? Free Spirit, I think he's changed the name to the, the company. They're yeah. doing some Kratom stuff. Yeah. Um, so would it be in Phuket or? Well, I think Phuket. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, I've been to Koh Samui, Koh Phangan, Koh Thai, but because Phuket's an island, but then you can go to the mainland quite easy uh, rather than messing about with a ferry. I think Phuket, and I like, and a lot, you know, like Krabi was nice, uh, but I think Phuket yeah, you is wouldn't. a lot nicer in terms of beaches and access. It's and a good hub, like, just to live from. Yeah. For me next, I'm, I might actually go move up to Chiang Mai. Okay. Um, but I want to kind of do, like, a, a house swap with somebody and just do three months. I mean, I love the beach here, but yeah. Chiang Mai is an interesting hub for the jump off point because after a while living in Phuket, when you've jumped off and you've been everywhere, I mean, you can't, there's not much more to see. It's just islands and beaches, yeah. but Chiang Mai, it's like pick a direction and you're in the mountains. So yeah, no, uh, I like mountains. Yeah. Um, I'm a diver as well. I have my advanced, yeah. uh, Samelian islands. Have you heard of this place? Yes. Have you been there? No. Oh my spectacular. It's got to be a top three in all of Asia. It's, it's Is it near here? Yes, Million Islands. It's about north uh, to Kowlak an hour. And then you got to do a liveaboard. Okay. And I've it described, it ruined diving for me. All right. It was that good. Yeah. So you come back and you go to Koh Phi Phi. Um, there's a good one off Krabi, Koh Lanta, called Koh Ha. Okay. But Samillion is like, and you talk to anyone that's a dive instructor here, they're like, They'll work on the liveaboard for a year and then they'll end up in Phuket. And it's just like, you see this on their face. It's like, wow. Okay. It's, you got leopard sharks. You have the Napoleon fish. Yeah. Um, wow. It's just giant like rock reefs. So you'll go down there. It looks like a billionaire's aquarium. It's spectacular. You can't even describe it, but you got to do a liveaboard. I think two nights is enough. Yeah. For me personally, uh -huh. after like 16 dives in two days, like. Yeah, that'd be fine for me. I get a lot of, uh, I get ear pain from the bubbles. Because, you know, you're, you're down there so long. And it's not like a pressure pain. It's just the bubbles are smacking your ears so much. By the by the, the end of that trip, you're like, okay, hey, I'm good for a couple months. I don't need to dive. No, exactly. Um, where was the, the best spot you've been around the world for diving? I think I've done um, 20 countries diving in um, four or five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say. Uh, it was quite funny because I, I was in Dubai and I did the deep dive Dubai. Do you know that one? No. It's like a deepest swimming pool in the world. Okay, it's in the shopping mall or something? No, but I've done that as well, the okay. aquarium with the sharks. But no, this is a 60 meter. But they've got at 30 meters, they've got like um, rooms. So there's like bedrooms, they've got a Mercedes car, they've got motorbikes and plane chess. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, you'd have to check it out. I've got it on my YouTube channel. Um, uh, but it, that, that was, you know, you, you don't see anything apart from, like, there's like a tree in there. Yeah, and, and stuff like so that. You'd, piano. You, di you dive down and you can, it's like, the rooms are underwater? or Underwater, you can actually, 30 meters. Because that's you, mainly for advanced divers. But there's not some sort of capsule where you can go stay in it? or, or No, no. Okay. So yeah, it's but it's a big pool. And it was 29 degrees, and it's probably 80 meters long by 50 meters wide. And you can do free diving in it. Okay. So do you free dive as well? No, I don't. Yeah, that's not for me. Yeah, I, I, when I first moved here, I got my Ida level two. Okay. And basically, you have to, they teach you in three days, but you got to get down to 20 meters. Yeah scary wow. it's very like i got down there i've never been back it took me like five tries to get down there and it's like no matter what people say it's very it's 20 meters yeah. free dive it's about a minute and a half but 
there's that certain point of like zero buoyancy. So after you've dropped like 10 meters, like, and you're turning around to come up, you physically have to fight your way back up because that the pressure weight belt on as well. Eh? You have a weight belt on. So you, yeah. you, cause you need the weight belt to first initially yeah. get you past that 10 meters and push you down. But your, your fins are this long. So it's pretty much every two kicks is about a meter. Okay. So you're, you're not, you're kind of doing it with your eyes closed essentially. Cause you have to keep your neck straight. You go oh, like that, you're not going to go straight, right? Oh, you okay. bend oh, your yeah. neck and yeah. start looking, you're going to go like that. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, it's very intense. There was a guy on the podcast here. He holds second place for the world's longest breath hold, 10 minutes and 30 seconds. He was on maybe insane. maybe two months ago and he was explaining it all. But these guys are world-class athletes. I mean, yeah, just Ten minutes. asking him, like, how do you prepare for that? He's like, when I go for it, his prep's like eight months all to right. go for the records. Yeah. Um, so your, yourself, we were talking about your trip out to Krabby. Uh, did you go with Michael or? No, no, I went with my friend Rob. We went back to UK. Okay. So we went on motorbikes uh, to Krabby. And so. how was the drive? It, did you get some wind? I know sometimes it can get a bit shaky out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, the last bit because we did the uh, James Wand Island. So I took a few hours. And then yeah. I told you my, my friend left his key at the restaurant. So then the boatman had to go another two hours to go and get it them back so we didn't get to crab until about 7 p.m and now it's dark and it's quite cold on a bike it uh um and noisy and i think my ear has been playing up yeah for, um what, what kind day. of uh, motor did he have an electric key or or was it could it, was it a turnkey yeah turnkey see what you should have done is just you call over like a mechanic they can hack that stuff yeah well it. i probably could have hacked it but in uh, 10 minutes yeah what they'll do is i've had it i've lost a key and gone to, gone to a restaurant who knows where the key went yeah and they'll call up a mechanic they'll bring over like a, a base key and yeah. they'll sit there with a chisel and figure it out okay and then boom let's go yeah but if it's electric it's a bit of a different story um for the rest of your time in phuket what are your plans you're staying here again you're, you said you're going this weekend up to bangkok no i'm gonna go next friday next friday so a week today so yeah. uh, your tentative plans now in Phuket, are you going to do any diving? Yeah, so I'll probably do another couple of dives. Uh, I've dived at the rocks near Nyang. Okay. Nyang, so that was, that was pretty cool. Nyang, so, the Nyang rocks. That's at the airport, though. Are you? Yeah, near, are I'm you, staying near the airport. Are you going off the, there's like a pier there in an artificial reef. Yeah, no, we went off from the beach on a long tail. Okay. There's like 10, 15 minutes there. Yeah, if you go around the bend, there's one spot. It's called Banana Beach. Okay. And then on the rocks there, the, the snorkeling's yeah. quite good. There is one dive spot. You'll see it's very rare, but you can see uh, whale sharks. All right. They'll come like once a year, but even dive instructors are like, I've never seen one. Okay. And then they'll yeah. come through. Yeah, um, no, I'll probably, I'll probably do a bit more on my book the next few days. I'll probably, because my mate's been here for 10 days. So I've had no time to do, so like, you know, emails and, writing anything or catching up with anything so i'll probably ne use the next couple of days just to, to chill out and also i've had quite a lot of alcohol with him yeah hey so i did last night i i have a rule podcast hungover it's it's terrible yeah. i'm actually i don't i, I just stick to beer because yeah. i know i if i touch the liquor then i'm hungover for five yeah. days but uh keys one he has a youtube channel in thailand we filmed we ate at the beach and there's no such thing as let's go for one beer no, it's just, I don't even know who who came up with that sentence. No, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. exist, especially because we're both ex-military as well. So it's yeah, military and alcohol seem to to be connected very well. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least the the Sam I drink the Sam Miguel lights here. They're yeah, me too. Bit, uh, because the the carb loads less. It's the yeah. same alcohol, but it's only four grams. Yeah. So when you start drinking the Tigers and the Singas, like after two, I'm so bloated. 
There's 16 grams of carbs in these things. Oh, is it really? Yeah, compared to the San Miguel's, it's four. So it's a life hack if you're in Thailand. San Miguel Light, it's not light beer, but you won't feel, you can drink them all day and yeah. you won't feel bloated. But the Singa's, oh my God. Yeah, okay. Terrible. Um, we'll finish on one of the last topic. You're working with Ty Emery here. Uh, is this typical that you will work with uh, athletes as you come through different countries or is it just more the connection with Michael? Yeah, no, it's just a connection with Michael because he invited me to his house for um, like and like some food and uh, with Clay and a few others. Yeah. And um, and then Clay said, oh, you know, uh, you'll meet this um, uh, lady called Ty. Uh, so when I introduced myself, obviously, you know, she thinks I'm like a, like a type of chiropractor osteopath. And I treated Michael's son. When I treated the, the gardener, when I treated another guy called Mark, when I said to Ty, I said, would you like me to do some work on you? And she went, oh, my God, that would be amazing if you could to do that. Because, uh, you know, I don't, I, don't char- I don't charge any money. Like in UK, I charge a lot of money. Yep. Yeah. Well, and Mark, one of Michael's friends, said, how much you want? I said, no, you're fine, you know. You, you've, you got me a beer here and, and, and you're feeding me. So and then I have this lovely view by your pool and, I, and I'm happy with that. So then I treated Ty mm-hmm. and, um, and hopefully she, she, she responded to what I did. Are you kind of, assa- even if they don't come to you with a problem, like in that situation, yeah. you're just assessing, maybe, yeah. let me look for some, some issues. Yeah. When you, would you say nine times out of 10, you're going to find something slight yeah. that they can adjust? Yeah. Um, Especially spinal stuff. Okay. And then how would they, um, you know, address that and take care of that? Is, are you providing exercises that maybe they could do on their own or how would that work? Yeah. So I was trying to catch up with Ty because I was... Um, I sent her some stuff from some of my books about, obviously, she does what she does, and she's advised in in their way, if you like, of training. But um, just by me mentioning about functional training, the interaction. So, like, once she's obviously hitting, but um, rather than just train training the muscle that would be responsible for that motion, or say, like a bench press motion, mm-hmm. it's not quite as simple as that because there's a rotation from the torso, and then... The left adductor is connected via the oblique system, if you like, to the muscle called the serratus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you are involved, it's called the anterior sling system. So when you are training, it, it is better to do a rotation training because it replicates what you do in terms of, of the fighting. So, but rather than trying to use the arm to hit, you try to use the leg to pull the arm to hit. So it's a full rotation, but you're trying to use the adductor to use the arm. Mm. So I was trying to explain to her. So uh, at some point, I probably will catch up and just and just guide her that way. Because obviously, she's probably got top trainers looking after her. But they, they'll have a set way of training. But sometimes, because I've probably seen so many, and, and, and hopefully I know anatomy very well, I can probably give her my expertise advice about how you might promote yourself. It's like you know, one of my friends, Gordon, he, he looked after the Canadian speed skating team. Olympic team and um, and he watched one of the girls who was who was getting like third and fourth never really first and second and then when he watched a speed skate he said to her your glutes must be screaming when you come around you know what I mean when you're in that position of skating and she said you know what I don't never feel it in my glutes and he went oh that's interesting so then he focused a bit more on the gluteus muscle because obviously the glute is the power muscle and, um, and then by instigating a different way, she's now first and second for most of the competitions. But so it's only by like half a second, you know, 0.7 of a second. 
So you mean she wasn't actually m using the max potential no, of the glute? Like maximizing yeah. the gluteus. Yeah. I mean, but it's only like a small, you know, with athletes, it's very small changes mm -hmm. uh, that can make a big difference. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, if she was to say, measure herself in terms of power on a pad, you know, and you, as, as you hit, it comes up with a figure, you know, because you can get these readings, uh, pads, kind of readings from it. And if you were to say, you know, try your hardest, but then for say a week or two or, or a month, you add this one motion in that's different, not 10, and then see if anything changes. So, I mean, so, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it'll be a small change, but then you might find the power of a hit will increase. Mm. Just not by training the pec muscles or the tricep muscles, but by training the sling. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So when you run in, it's like, um, there's a famous lady in UK called Jessica, uh, Jessica Ennis. She's like a, um, I think a pentathlete. Many, you know, she did the Olympics. And, um, and then she had these like amazing abdominals. And then the, the journalist said, oh my God, how do you get abs? Like how many sit-ups a day do you do? And she goes, I don't do any. Mm. I run. Because running is rot rotation in the transverse plane. Mm -hmm. So when you run and walk, you cross the transverse plane. So when you, f when you hit, when you rotate, like boxers, mm -hmm. you, trans you cross that plane. So you have to train in that plane of motion. So it's like, like a famous chiropractor called uh, Paul Check, like Check training. And, um, and he's very biased towards functional training, using like golfers. Mm -hmm. So there's a picture of a golfer with these muscles interacting on them. So when they do the swing motion, it's not about training the muscles of the arms and things, it's trying to utilize the motion of the swing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then how these slings are interacted in that swing motion. Interesting, yeah, yeah. I mean like, um, I was listening to that podcast and really explaining how everything is so well connected. And uh, I didn't even realize until I got injured and saw, saw a physiotherapist, it's like, well, again, you have a knee problem, but probably it's, you know, could be your shoulder, could be your hip. And, yeah. Anyways, it was the quad. Um, just to end it on, on our final note, we're going to kick the camera, uh, this camera over to you. Um, first, when, when we kick it over here, if you could just let everyone know where they can find you, your, your YouTube, your Instagram. And if anyone yeah. wants to reach out to you, I'm also aware that you do Zoom call sessions if yeah. you're still offering that. Yeah. Um, so I'll kick it to that camera and just let everyone know where they're able to find you. Uh, yeah, so if you just search for John Gibbons Osteopath on YouTube, that's probably the easiest one uh, to see in my YouTube channel. Um, Instagram, it's known as bodymaster.method. So, because I'm known as the, the bodymaster, so I run a program called the Bodymaster Method Training. And my website is called johngibbonsbodymaster.co.uk. So, um, if you look for me on there, uh, my email is the same. So, it's john at johngibbonsbodymaster.co.uk. Um, so, if you have any questions, you can just uh, contact me there or on Instagram. Uh, or even on, on YouTube, and I'll be fine. Okay. Uh, would you say email is probably the preferred easiest method to get through to you? Yeah, or Instagram. And if they want to yeah. if, uh, book a session or if they want to do a Zoom call, yeah. and again, you can do that anywhere in the world and anywhere. be able to assess. Okay, uh, that ends another episode of the Fruiting Body Podcast. Thanks a lot, John, for your time, and we know you're on vacation. <laughs> I think I need a little hair on the dog, <laughs> maybe just one, and then get back to work. <laughs> um, enjoy your time in Phuket. Again, much appreciated for coming on, and no uh, that's great. Yeah, thank Thanks. you. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Yeah, cheers.